0: Hello and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini, I'm one of the founders of Forefront, and today we have a very special episode for you. Earlier this year, we hosted a virtual screening of the short film, Identity, the Andrew Nemer Story. It was an official selection of the Justice Film Festival, and it journeys with Andrew Nemer, an internationally known tap dance artist, as he navigates the seminal question, Who am I? The film joins Andrew as he navigates being the only son of immigrants, a trusted keeper of the oral tradition of tap dance, and a follower of Jesus Christ. Through many challenges, we see Andrew as he literally dances his way through questions about family, ethnicity, race, art, community, and where one's identity really comes from. So at the virtual event, we watched the film together and then did a Q&A session with Andrew. Well, unfortunately I can't show the film on the podcast now. What I can do is play the audio from the trailer, so you can get a sense of what the film is about, and then I'll play the Q&A that I did with Andrew. I hope you enjoy.
1: If you believe in the idea that things can change the world, then TAP has the power to change the world.
0: Andrew Nemmer has been hoofing almost as long as he's been walking.
1: Is Andrew J. Just one second, put your hands together and welcome Mr. Andrew
0: Pepper! Andrew is really quite a miraculous dancer. You know, I I sort of knew it from reputation, but I hadn't actually experienced it. I fell
1: in love with Andrew when he performed for his Ted Fellow talk.
0: If there was a way to credit a PhD in tap dance, he would be it.
1: We live in a culture where, where what you do for work is very much a part of who you are. It either gives you value or takes value away. And there's, there's no truth
0: in that. Andrew suffers wanting so bad to be with people and then having things that he can't control, like race or history, tear him apart. Andrew's journey is all about an immigrant who's exiled from his homeland and yet Creates and redefines what homeland is.
1: The entire question, I think, is about identity. Because once you answer that, then all other things flow from that. Tap dancer, Lebanese, American, Canadian, Middle Eastern, Phoenician, Christian, good student, art student, bullied, loner, fat kid, only child. Who he is is love, and people recognize that in him, and that's what we're all aching for, isn't it? If I asked him... You want to change the word? He said, yeah. I would like to do that.
0: Andrew, my first question, uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about how you and the Windrider team uh, went about making this film. It, It seems like you had this motif of... Your different identities that you you had this list of identities and uh, you know the film kind of goes through these and has this arc with low points and high points and all this kind of thing and yet it's all kind of contained in in the 20 minutes so how did you go about creating that structure of, of like the list of identities in the arc of the film? Uh, did, did you have like a writer's room and, and come up with that? Or was it created from them following you around for a year? Or, or how did this come about? Yeah,
1: good good question. Um, so Windrider is a phenomenal production company. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, please check them out. They They support uh, young filmmakers and run an amazing event around Sundance annually. We met actually while on a trip in Japan. So Mako Fujimura had invited me to come out to Nagasaki for a collaboration. And part of the trip was a trip to the Goto Islands, which are a series of uh, small islands just off the coast of the main island of Japan. Um, that was a sanctuary for persecuted Christians back in the 1600s. And on that road, I'm sitting next to John Pretty, who's the the CEO of Windrider, and we start talking and we find out that uh, we're both uh, sons of of Lebanese immigrants, which is a rare thing to find, and that he lives in Boise, Idaho, and I love Boise, Idaho. And that's also a rare combination to find. So... (laughs) Windrider is there to document Mako and document the, the entire trip. And we get to the island and we're, we're, we're walking around and we find uh, what's considered a dead church. It's an old church based back to the 1600s and used to be one of the places of worship for the persecuted Christians. And we, we walk in and everybody's asked to take off their shoes before, before we enter just out of respect for the space. And there's nothing in the space. Right, completely open except uh, a beautiful, a beautiful altar, uh, kind of at the far end. Mm. And Mako comes to me and he says, uh, "Do you think you'd you'd be okay with dancing here?" And I say, "Yeah, yeah, I could do that." And we're there. You know, there's there are a few of us. There are a few people who've come on the trip just to be observers and kind of part of the journey. And Mako turns back to me and he says, but you can't, you can't wear your shoes. Is that going to be a problem? And I said, no, no, there's no problem. Um, so we set up and everybody kind of goes to the one far end of the church. They sit down on the floor and I, I, I come in and I dance and the film crew films it. And the story goes that that was, uh, that was the moment that they kind of decided that they wanted to try to follow me around and and figure out how to how to do something but that's the last scene in the documentary right and very soon after that i had the opportunity to do a workshop of the solo show called rising to the tap invited the team to new york and said hey we're doing this thing i think it might be a good idea to to get it on film because it's all the stories in one place yeah and Basically over the course of it of a year, a year and a half, it was conversations back and forth saying, okay, well, what is this film actually about? And one question that kept coming up was, uh, does Andrew have any darkness in him? Because you know, documentary films have to have drama and tension and stuff. And I guess the way <laughs> the way that I presented to, to John and the Windrider team is just a very joyful cat. So they're like, is this even gonna work? Like, is there anything that we can set <laughs> this joy against? And well, they, they found it. And, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to John Sippity and the entire editing team that kind of really spent a chunk of time with uh, footage from Lebanon, which the scene of me in the, the forest of cedars uh, is from Lebanon the only time i've ever been able to get out there in my life Wow! Uh, so they yeah they spent hours kind of combing through interviews and the stock footage that i just sent them a hard
0: drive worth of stuff that i had uh and came out with this amazing so what was it like having a team working on making a movie about you was that gratifying or nerve-wracking or both (laughs) yeah
1: it's definitely both <laughs> I think, like it's very it's 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 a it's a boost to the ego definitely and also very humbling and honoring when somebody says we want to invest our time in documenting your story and we believe that this would be helpful for others to see mm-hmm. so those those two things i think happen very very early on and then you have a team of five people who decide to follow you around whenever they're close and also set up times to kind of fleece your life because the the questions are not they're not easy <laughs> right and again john and some of the other folks michael pretty some of the other folks who were working on the interview side uh were just really delightful to work with. So it was it was easy for me to open up and say, right. sure, let's talk about this. Okay, here we go. Like, <laughs> I guess we have to go there.
0: That's great. So the film, of course, it's called Identity. And and that ended up kind of being the, the theme of it and, and kind of a who you, who you are kind of story. Um, but I feel like the, the word identity is used in a lot of different ways. So uh certainly like as christians one of the ways we often talk about it is we want our identity to be in christ and so that's Mm -hmm. kind of like a fundamental thing that that we want to talk about in terms of identity Uh, but then on the other end of the spectrum people talk about like artistic identity uh, which might be just what's your artistic style um and so identity gets used in all these different ways and a lot of ways in between uh, so w- when you think about it, maybe particularly for this group, um, a lot of Christians who are involved in the arts, what what does it mean to find our identity?
1: Thanks for that question. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is the quote. I think it's from I think it's from Michelangelo. This is going this is gonna be a problem uh, if I get this wrong. <laughs> <But> the, the, <laughs> the quote about sculpting something and saying you know i see the rock and all i have to do is take away all the things that are not part of the sculpture mm. right and at least from for my journey um it's been very interesting for me to continually look back and see how many things are not fundamental to the identity of who i am and so as as a As a believer and follower of Christ, knowing that my fundamental identity, like the the thing that matters most in terms of how I see myself, is found there. And everything else is extra. It's bonus. So my aesthetic in dancing might be a function of a number of teachers that I have, a number of people that I've followed, and also the formation of my own personality, which is as a human being, is highly complex, mm. right? But at the root of it, if you were to take all the things away, my hope is that I would remember that there is one place that I can run to that I will always know who I am. And that it will be as, as true and as full and as clear of a reflection of my true identity that I can find on this side of heaven.
0: I think, you know, the film takes us through a lot of ups and downs in your life. And, and I think particularly what uh, you went through with Savion and, and that kind of, uh, that rejection and that break in friendship and community that we saw in the film. And I have to believe that kind of coming out of that, that there must've been this, this break in confidence and friendship and community. Uh, and then coming to the place where you are today, uh, you've had to kind of rebuild that, rebuild that, that confidence and that trust and rebuild community. And, and at one point in the film, you're even described as an embodiment of love uh, happening in the context of a community. So um, yeah. could you talk a little bit about just your, your journey to, to kind of coming back to that uh, trust in community and finding that again?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a daily work for me. Um, Actually, and I'm I'm continually learning how much of an impact uh, that that event in you know my experience of that event uh, had on me. You know, even though I was I was 16, so I was you know older, but I was still still very much being formed. Um, thankfully, in 2001, uh, so this is. You know the noise funk thing happened around 1996, 97, and then in 2001. Um, I had I was in my senior year of college. Like I finally thought that I had gotten over, felt like in a, in a good place with all those things. Uh, Savion gives me a call and invites me to a gig. He's like, "Are you are you free this January?" And I'm like, "Yes, of course." Didn't even think about it twice. And that, that led to three years of working with him in a new company that he was forming called Tie-Dye, uh, which eventually also disbanded and kind of everybody went their own way. Uh, but I, at least for me, that felt like a moment of reconciliation. Um, mm-hmm. But I can say that it's a very difficult thing for me to completely open up in the way that I used to as a kid. Right, where you walk into a space and you're like, here's all of me, and we see where we go because that's that's trust, right? That's what kid kid like little little kids do is they they hold your hand because you're the grown person, and wherever you take them, they'll go. Um or they'll have a thing in their hand and they'll give it to you because their their generosity is just continual. I think relying Well, trusting God more than I trust anybody else is kind of where I've landed and saying that any relationship is is fed through that that relationship first. Right. And it's it's placed me in a place where. As I as I get to know more people who operate in that way. The relationships are a lot more healthy. They're like, everybody's holding each other very softly and very carefully because we're honoring each other's place and our journeys and curious about kind of what God is doing in each person's heart and where they're leading, but not saying, not imposing a particular view on a person. And that's, that's been a wonderful experience for me because at least in my experience of kind of high achieving arts spaces, that's not necessarily the norm for how, how folks relate to one another.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the things you were telling me about recently, uh, speaking of high performing art spaces, you were saying how, uh, our artistic practice can, can inform personality. And you've seen ways in your life where your practice informs your personality. Uh, And you said that, that there was a sense in which, you know, immersion in your artistic practice can lead to burnout. uh, And yet, healthy artistic practice can also be this beautiful way of communing with God. So Mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you learned about how to practice your art form? uh, And and what are some of the things that maybe we should be thinking about uh, as we try to create those kind of healthy patterns for the artistic mediums that we might be working in?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so, what I've what I've come to understand is that every every art practice um, has its thing, right? Like there are particular senses that are amplified and honed and are sharper uh, depending on the practice that you're in, um, and there are particular experiences that you're your body literally gets used to because of the time and mode that whatever practice you're involved in has Mm -hmm. so as a tap dancer my body has gotten used to excessive amounts of exertion over time um, sometimes very very short amount of time and sometimes longer Uh, you know average rehearsal uh, when I was working with Savion was three hours and we would often go three hours break for an hour. And that's just for food. And then another three hours. So you're looking at this at a six hour day. Mm. And so a normal pace of life or like a pace of life that is not that, (laughs) right. That is more common to, to other, other people becomes harder to actually engage with or understand or there are so many things that come up in my body because of the habit of the practice that I have. It is like, if you're not doing so much, something's wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't know that that's, that's part of the deal. It's just because the context of the rehearsal or the performance is this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So anything other than that becomes wrong or or not doing enough especially uh, in my case I grew up in a in a context where uh, high engagement and high exertion was uh, valued, and if ever you were kind of slacking off and slacking off was like doing everything but not to 110 percent was demeaned and so what what I've come to is really having to be very clear with myself about when i'm dancing and when i'm not dancing. Mm. And realizing that i have to i have to have multiple modes of engagement and it's not me like code switching or being multiple people it it is literally saying to my body there're different ways of existing over the course of the day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't have to come to an empty tank at the end of the day and necessitate an ice bath or soaking my feet in Epsom salt just to think that I've I've done everything correctly over the course right. of that day. Um, and that's that's super freeing. It's it's challenging because I've got you know 37 years of tap dance habit <laughs> under my belt, and so working working out of that. Right to a place where I don't feel like that standard is the thing I have to hit every day Mm -hmm. uh, is a legitimate challenge. And so I I pose that to to any practice or any, any person who has a dedicated practice against knowing that most practices can be spiritual disciplines, like they're disciplines of engagement. And so understanding that uh you know we can be in conversation with god while we're in our practice trying to see what comes through us or what because they are heightened forms of expression Mm -hmm. and so they can be seen as just other forms of language that would need interpretation for them to be valuable for people who are outside of the form but uh for those, for those who are inside of the form, can be a really fun way of, of communicating.
0: Right. Andrew, near the end of the film, there's this, I think, a, a, amazing moment when uh, you say that your dance now is more about dancing and just having joy in the presence of my Lord um, than it is about trying to work out anything. And uh, of course, the sequence embodies that really well that you talked about where you're, you're dancing in the church barefoot, uh, where it's, it's not about having a big audience. Uh, it's not even about the sound of the tap shoes. And I think um, for a lot of us as creators, we get caught up in this idea of having to, to make our work successful or marketable or even just seen. Um, so how do you get to that place, to that place where you can lay aside all of that and, and pursue your craft just joyfully and just dance in the presence of the Lord. Um, how, how do you get there? Uh, indirect action.
1: So one of, one of the, one of the teachers that I've been highly affected by over the past year for me, um, has been Dallas Willard. And he speaks a lot to the way spiritual disciplines function in the context of being a disciple of Christ, so being an apprentice or a follower of Jesus. And so if I were to say, "Okay, I know I'm supposed to let go of all these other things that are affecting me negatively and like pressurizing my life. And I'm supposed to be joyful when I do this, because I know like I know that's the end that I want to have. If I just try to be joyful, like, it's not really going to work. <laughs> but there are things that I can do uh, that allow me to do things that I can't do by direct effort. Mm-hmm. And so what I've found is spending time trying to listen to God. So that's essentially spending time in silence, which is the opposite of you know, being a musician in that, in that practice, mm-hmm. has allowed me to enter the space of dance without having my thoughts clouded so much with the things that I want to have happen in the room with my shoes on, right? Not practicing the discipline of abstinence with regards to my practice has allowed me to come back into the room and say, I wonder if this is gonna work. Mm. Right? Because I can't, I can't trust the, the practice that I have to, ha- to get the output. Mm-hmm. My trust has to be somewhere else. And then when I come when I come back to you know consistent rehearsing and and things like that, I can hedge against trusting my efforts. the effort in get the time in make sure you you do the checks that you know on the on the vehicle that you have for the craft work but the trust is elsewhere Mm -hmm. and i think that's coming to a place where where that is like a larger understanding for me um has allowed me to to trust god for all the things that i would normally trust my craft or my marketing or, you know, like whatever aspects of the freelance life can kind of grab our attention and say, well, there's a system that would solve for this and you'd be able to make this much money. And then you'd have time to spend on your craft and like you, you try and build this wonderful, perfect thing and you start trusting that thing, which really boils down to trusting the thing that you made as opposed to trusting the person who made you.
0: So before we move to the questions from the people who are actually here, we do have one question from someone who's not here. uh, And that is Makoto Fujimura. Uh, He was actually featured in the film. And Andrew, you recently asked him uh, a question on our podcast about what he does for fun. And he said we should turn it around and ask you that exact same question. (laughs) So so Andrew, uh, what do you do for fun? Oh, wow. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Touche. okay uh good one wow uh i i love learning i i really do so i i try and dive into um to something that's gonna gonna feed my brain uh feed my mind i also really enjoy sleeping that's a that's like a practice for me um and I enjoy conversations. I, I love having like really, really fruitful conversations. but so, okay, all those things end up feeling like uh, like professional development or personal development things at some point, right? Mm-hmm. So for fun, I, I find myself, you know, doing really menial things that have no, no possibility of being caught as being developmental in any way, shape or form. Right. So, uh, I like organizing, just like putting things in a place where they look really good. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: and like my, my, my sight can calm down because everything's in its nice place. Um, laundry is kind of like that for me. Right. It's like, I'm, I'm not gonna grow necessarily out of doing this, like it might be indirect action at that point, but it's just something that's normal, that I can say, yeah, okay, that's the thing. And I did it and
0: cool. <laughs> Before we close, I did want to ask, uh, one of the the audience members asked if your film is available to uh, watch later or to share with others. Um, If anybody wanted to share the film with their friends, uh, would they be able to do that?
1: Yeah, right now, the the way that the film is kind of spreading out is through hosting screenings like this. And the ability to host is open to anybody. So if you go to andrewnimmer.com slash identity, uh, you'll be able to submit a form and express some interest in hosting and the forms come directly to me. So, you know, we'll be in conversation and I'd be, I'd be happy to, to field those, those requests.
0: Excellent. And if anybody wanted to uh, ask further questions or just get in contact with you or follow your work, anything like that, uh, what's, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Sure. AndrewNimmer.com is the website. Uh, I have a email list that you can subscribe to there. And I'm on most of the social things. I'm not on all of them, uh, but Facebook and Instagram at Andrew J. Nimmer, middle initial J.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Andrew Nimmer. I certainly did. And if you want to follow up on anything you heard today, please feel free to contact Andrew as he described. Or reach out to us at Forefront, either by email, which is info at ForefrontFestival.com, or on Instagram, at ForefrontFest, or any other social platform. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode and continue the conversation. Until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.